0: Welcome to Let's Talk Governance, a podcast to support regional West Australian non-for-profit groups to lead and steer their activities with high impact, confidence and compliance. The podcast is brought to you by the Grower Group Alliance and made possible with the generous support of podcast sponsor, the CBH Group. Your host is Callista Bolton of the Grower Group Alliance and our expert guest is renowned governance instructor, Peter Fitzpatrick. The Grower Group Alliance is a WA statewide network of around 60 farmer-led grower groups that are all run with volunteer committees. Established by grower groups for grower groups almost 20 years ago, today member groups extend from Kununurra in the northwest all the way down to Esperance in the southeast. Across the network, the groups have a diverse collective membership of around 4,000 farm enterprises, operating in all sectors of the agriculture industry at all different levels of scale and purpose.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Let's Talk Governance podcast. My name is Callista Bolton, I work with the Grower Group Alliance in the role of stakeholder and communications manager. Let me introduce our guest governance expert, Peter Fitzpatrick, who will be delivering all the technical content for this six-episode series. Peter is a well-known West Australian governance instructor. Peter has quite the resume, but for the context of this podcast, let's focus on his governance work. Peter is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has an advanced diploma in company directorship. He is currently a director of 6 boards and chairperson of 4, which are a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Peter is currently a teaching instructor for the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and consults privately offering governance consulting and training workshops. Welcome Peter.
2: Thank you, Callista.
1: Well, let's talk governance. Where do we start?
2: Well I thought a good place to start might be uh, looking at some of the issues that have been uh, identified uh, with boards by the regulators around Australia. So I'll just cover them, there's 10 of them actually, uh, but I'll just briefly work through them. The first one is the size and composition of the board. Size, normally uh, the problem I see is many boards are too big, I think 9 is sort of, uh, is probably a maximum I would think, and probably 3 is a minimum. And in terms of composition, We really need to look at the skills you need and to do a skills audit from time to time to see you've got the right people around the table. The next one is appointment and removal of directors. The issue here is you need to follow your constitution. You can't just remove directors if you don't get on with them. The only way you can normally remove a director is uh, by a vote of members at the AGM or an extraordinary general meeting, (EGM). The other thing that is available in a lot of the constitutions is you can fill a casual vacancy on a board when someone resigns. The next one is culture that fails to be transparent, account- accountable a- and responsible. Uh, culture is everything in an organisation. We're going to be talking about this in a later session, but it's critically important that there is one culture throughout the organisation. Without that, nothing else will work, strategy and all these other things that you're trying to achieve. The other thing that can occur is entrenched patterns of unproductive behaviour. Remember, being a director is a team game, and the last thing we need is people there pushing egos or to have factions on a board. The next one is undue focus on operational matters. This is a one that I see very, very often. People are much more comfortable with operations rather than doing the heavy mental lifting of actually looking at the strategic uh, aspects. W- where is the organisation going? Where are you taking it? And I think that needs to be looked at. In nautical terms, you've got to get on the bridge of the ship and get out of the engine room and leave that to your executive officer and staff. Another one that was identified is resistance to change. I think that's just a human condition. People don't like change. You need to keep moving and growing in organisations. There's an old saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. So change is inevitable and we have to move with it at board level in not-for-profits. The other one is a lack of understanding of the roles of directors and management. This gets confusing, particularly in smaller boards, in a small not-for-profits, where quite often the directors have to do a lot of the, the management-type work because there isn't enough staff to do it. But you have to make sure that management is left to do the managing wherever possible and directors are responsible for looking at the, the big picture, as we talked about earlier. The next one is the uh, awareness of authority of directors in relation to staff. Uh, The golden rule here, having been a CEO myself and now mainly a director, is there is no role for directors in starting to tell staff what they should be doing. You can't direct staff. That's the prerogative of the EO or the CEO. The next one is an inability to develop and monitor performance against strategy. Few organisations achieve their strategy with any great success each year. So you have a role as a board to develop the strategy, but a key role to keep monitoring it as you're going along. And I try to monitor a key strategic objective every board meeting on the boards that I chair. And then finally, development of uh, relevant key uh, key performance indicators, KPIs as you probably know them. These can be financial, such as profit, the number of members that you have, non-financial... That can be member satisfaction or it can be a strategic objective. But you need to have these little dashboards called KPIs to make sure that you're on track.
1: Excellent. So that was the, the 10 major issues that are currently sort of being identified.
2: Yes, the regulators have picked those, mm. those up and, and they say they're the most common problems that they see. So probably mm. a good place to start to identify the problem. Now we can look at some solutions.
0: To find your local grower group, head to the Grower Group Alliance website, gga.org.au. While you're there, subscribe to the GGA newsletter and be sure to stay up to date with the activities and opportunities from the 60 plus groups around WA that make up the vibrant and diverse Grower Group Alliance Network.
1: Moving on, what is the meaning of not-for-profit and how are not-for-profit entities different to other organisations?
2: Well, that's an interesting one because the whole term not-for-profit is a bit of a misnomer, really. I think they should be calling it community enterprise, and I've tried hard to get the names changed for that, but it takes a while. Uh, In other places, you'll hear not-for-profits referred to as the third sector, which is sort of not private companies, not public companies, but a third sector. The first thing you need to say about not-for-profit, you're definitely not for loss. Mm. Um, and, And don't play with words and say, well, we're having a surplus, not a profit. You're entitled and you should make profits if you're going to be successful. So don't let the term throw you off. I think that does that sometimes. Um, your primary purpose, a bit different to profit for-profit companies, is to provide services to members, whereas theirs is to provide dividends to shareholders. Right, Yeah. But the role of the not-for-profit is to provide services to members. Are you Are you looking after your members properly? You should have the uh, a not-for-profit should not pay tax. Your stat- tax status should be that you don't pay tax. If you're a charitable organisation, then you can become a deductible gift recipient by applying to the, the tax office and the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission, and that means anyone who donates to you gets a tax deduction. But you don't get a tax deduction for a not-for-profit that is not a charity. Right, OK. OK. Um, The other thing that's quite meaningful about not-for-profits is you can't distribute surpluses. You can't say we've had a good year and the board then gives themselves a dividend or even the members get a dividend. Uh, That is strictly uh, forbidden. Uh, You shouldn't accumulate unnecessary surpluses unless you've got a purpose, like you're buying a building or you've got some other contingency. Um, You should make sure that, uh, that you use your surpluses to provide better member services. The the difference probably between not for profits and others. There's you may have heard uh, of cooperatives where you can distribute surpluses. They come under an entirely different act and uh, they are able to distribute surpluses. And then you have the for profit companies. There's a company, a limited company, which is normally a public company on the stock exchange, and a private company, which are normally called proprietary limited, which are private companies that uh, that, that make profits and are able to distribute them to whoever is a shareholder in that company. The main thing to also remember with uh, not-for-profits is you need to be incorporated. Uh, that means that you have protections at law by coming under the, the, the State Act, which is the Incorporated Associations Act. Uh, never belong to an unincorporated body yeah. because that means the liability strictly falls back on the individual directors.
1: Super important for our local community groups that, um, you know, it it provides them a level of protection. Um, and certainly, um, I know from my own experience, there are limitations as to what you can do um, without an incorporation like, you know, um, bank accounts, insurance, um, you know, sponsors are uh, a bit hesitant to go in and, and all of the above. So definitely that is a very important one to um, look at incorporation. All right, so generally speaking, corporate governance, that whole term... You know, what is it and why is it important?
2: Okay, corporate governance. It's important because it provides the system that actually underpins the whole running of not-for-profit organisations. It describes how organisations are directed and controlled, how rights and responsibilities are decided, what are the rights and responsibilities of the board, of management, of members and other stakeholders like your suppliers and anybody else that uh, that you have to deal with, government and so on. So it, it should spell out the rules and procedures for making decisions. It should set the goals and objectives and it should set the way in which you monitor performance. This ongoing monitoring is something that I will emphasise throughout these podcasts because uh, being on a board is not a set and forget experience. You have to keep monitoring to make sure that management is doing what you've asked of it, and that the board themselves uh, are accountable and committed to achieving what you've set out to achieve. If you wanted to simplify corporate governance, you could put it into four different categories. The first one is the rules. The second is relationships. The third are processes. And the fourth are systems. Let me just unpick those a little bit for a moment. Uh, The rules. The rules are all of the state and government laws that you're bound by, whether they are Commonwealth laws like environmental law and so on, or state laws such as the law that's the Incorporated Associations Act. Then there is your constitution. Then there are other legal requirements such as contracts you enter into with government or with staff and so on. Relationships. Not for profits have very big networks of relationships normally. Uh, you're talking about your members, you're talking about government, talking about media, suppliers, sponsors. The, the list can go on quite endlessly. So corporate governance picks up all of those. You should have uh, relationship management or relationship strategies in place. Mm. The processes, what are the processes that you should that should form part of corporate governance? Strategy development, risk management, uh, setting those key performance indicators that I was talking about, doing a board evaluation from time to time to see that you, d- you are doing the right thing and that you've got the right people around the table. And then finally, systems, how do you delegate? Do you delegate to management? Do you delegate to subcommittees of the board? Uh, how, do you, how do you delegate the risk and strategy to be developed within your organisation? And how do you actually have a system of oversight, which is coming back to that, that issue again, of oversight of everything that goes on by the board?
1: Mm, so overall, you could really summarise that as good housekeeping, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's a bit more than just housekeeping. It's a, it's a whole lot of systems and processes you need to set up. Yeah. And I've been involved in a number of start-up not-for-profits and getting all those procedures and totally. processes right while at the same time you're trying to do things for your members. Yeah. Uh, it, it can send you down all sorts of paths and you've got to make sure you don't miss things.
0: Owned and controlled by around 3,800 WA grain growing businesses, CBH Group is proud to be actively involved with and supportive of the communities we operate in. We do this through our Community Investment Fund, and a large part of this fund is committed to building leadership capacity in our regional communities, we support and deliver programs that build strength, resilience, knowledge, and skills for future industry leaders to work towards a sustainable and profitable grain growing industry. For more info, head to cbh.com.au forward slash scholarships.
1: Now moving on, the key responsibilities for directors. What what are the key responsibilities in your wisdom and experience? Okay.
2: Well, I've got eight of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the first one is to – and I'll come back and explain each of them, but I'll, I'll just uh, say what they are to start with. First, you've got to act in good faith. Secondly, you've got to display uh, due care and diligence. The next is you must ensure compliance. The next is performance. Then you're responsible for statutory responsibilities and legal responsibilities. And then there is technical competence and behavioural competence. So, so the eight – So let's talk about acting in good faith. Acting in good faith means that you avoid any conflicts of interest. Now, we're going to talk about conflicts of interest uh, later on in this series. But just very briefly, it means you should have no personal interest or you're not at odds with the organisation because of your financial, personal or other interests. The next part of acting in good faith you never misuse information or misuse your position in the community. Normally things that are discussed around the board table stay at the board table. And finally, acting in good faith means you get no gain by improperly using information. So that's the way that's described. And I think the real issue here is if you don't act in good faith, you can find that your insurance company might uncover you for claims and there can be legal consequences for you. The next one is due care and diligence. Due care and diligence means you've got to do your homework. You've got to read your board notes. You've got to be well prepared. You have to act in the best interest of the organisation. You've got to make sure, as they say, you properly inform yourself. And you do have to have financial literacy. You do need to understand your finances. That's all part of a duty of care. Because the thing that's going to get you in more trouble than anything else is not getting the finances right. I talked then about compliance. Compliance is compliance with all the accounting standards, your constitution and uh, the law generally, making sure that's one side of it and the other side is performance. That's when you're on the bridge looking forward. uh, How is the organisation performing? Are you monitoring it? Are you going in the right direction? We talked about statutory obligations. These are the Acts of Parliament. So you must comply with any acts of parliament that fall within your not-for-profit organisation. Legal, legal covers everything else. That's your constitution, contracts, grants, employment contracts and so on. And then finally, technical and behavioural competence. Technical competence, you have to know how the organisation functions. You've got to know exactly what it does. You have to be across the detail. You can't give advice unless you know exactly uh, you're technically competent to give that advice. And then behavioural competence, well, that's slightly different. That's how well you work with other directors. Are you a good cultural fit? Are you a team player? Or are you somebody that creates more problems than you solve? And I think behavioural competence is often an issue on not-for-profit boards. Mm,
1: yeah. I, I Also really in, in smaller communities where you've got limited um – Number of people available to make a contribution, and um, you know, there could be other, other dynamics going on in the community that um, cause tensions. So, really, you know, getting putting all that aside to come to the table to work collectively on, uh, on, on your group's purpose is it's quite a challenge. Peter, the different types of directors, what, 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 what does that mean? Um, you know, and we're talking about director, um, is it the same as a committee member?
2: A committee member, it doesn't matter what you call, you call yourself a council, a committee, or a board, you're all directors yep. uh, if you're an incorporated body. Okay. So, so, what are the different types? Um, it's pretty interesting. There's more than most people think, actually. Um, let me just cover off on a couple. There's an alternate director, the chair, the chair is a director, people tend to forget that. There's de facto director, there's executive director, there's a non executive director there's independent director, managing director, nominee director and shadow director. So there's quite a little washing (laughs) list there, isn't there? So let me just very quickly talk through those. An alternate director is somebody who can be brought in as an alternative. Someone goes off on long-term leave or is sick or something like that. So you could bring somebody in. They have the same director responsibilities as, uh, as the director who they're replacing. Sometimes when you struggle to get people to meetings, you can have an alternate director that can turn up in the place of one who can't turn up to a meeting. I don't like that arrangement because it tends to become disjointed If people. You don't know who's going to turn up from one meeting to the next. But that term alternate director applies there as well.
1: Peter, just on... That th- that alternative direct obviously needs to be arranged in advance. Yes, they can't does. just tag in yes, and <laughs> when it needs someone's to going be, to Bali. And it,
2: yeah, that's right. And it needs to be in your constitution. Okay. So then there's a capacity to ah, do right. that. Ah, right.
1: Okay. That's another okay. thing.
2: Um, the chair, well, the chair is a director. In fact, not only is the chair a director, uh, the chair has probably higher responsibilities. And in law, he will be held more, or she will be held more accountable at law for for the director responsibilities and for governance. What's a de facto director? A de facto director is somebody who may turn up to board meetings uh, and have an influence over things. You may have your accountant or auditor comes in. Sometimes executive officers and chief executive officers have to become careful that they don't become so part of the decision-making they can be regarded as a de facto director. In other words, they're not an appointed director, but they influence decisions in a way that drives the organisation in a particular direction. If it comes to being a problem, well, then the regulating authority will say, well, you're a de facto director in that decision, so we're going to rope you in if there's a problem. So need to be careful about that. Executive director is pretty simple. That's the, normally the, the senior person who works in a business, but it can refer to anybody who is both a director and also works in the organisation. So it's a working director. They have director responsibilities, but they also uh, have the additional role of either running the organisation or being a, an employee in the organisation. A not-for-profit director probably describes most directors. Most boards uh, are non-executive directors. That means they are directors and have director responsibilities, but they they uh, they don't work in the business. So they don't in not-for-profits. You normally don't get remunerated. You simply come to meetings, come to committee meetings. Uh, You're a non-executive director because you don't have executive authority. An independent director, sometimes these are appointed by boards. If you have, say, a lot of people in the farming community and you're missing skills in legal, accounting or something like that, you can appoint an independent director that will bring those skills to the table. But your constitution must allow for that. Right, Yeah. The only other director is, uh, or the managing director, I need to uh, mention that one because people get confused about this. Normally, managing director is just another form of executive director. In other words, they work in the business, but they have director responsibilities. So the managing director normally is appointed to big companies. They do the same job as a CEO, except a CEO is not a director. The CEO is appointed, the managing director is appointed but the managing director has director responsibilities, a CEO does not. A nominee director is somebody that is nominated to your board uh, from a a like organisation or a subsidiary organisation. So by virtue of their position, they are nominated to be on your board. So it's normally a subsidiary or like uh, or sister or brother organisation, whatever you want to refer it as. And then finally, a shadow director. These are the ones that lurk in the shadows. Quite often the former former board members who are still trying to influence decisions around the place and telling people how to vote. A uh, bit like de facto directors, a shadow director, if a decision is uh, attributed back to their influence, they can be roped in for any consequences of that decision.
1: So on that one, that's probably quite relevant for a regional community context where you've got, say, a succession happening and the President or chairperson has stepped down, has pledged their support to the incumbent um, and that they're available on the end of the telephone and, you know, that's all based around good intent and not sort of abandoning the ship and providing that guiding um, hand but there needs to be caution? Is that what you'd say?
2: Yes, you you don't – well, I have a saying for having been Chair of many, many boards that one minute you're a rooster, the next minute you're a feather duster. And I think you've got to apply that rule. In other words, you, you don't continue to try and influence the organisation. This often comes about sometimes with founders of organisations. They're very reluctant to let go. So they're, they're constantly sort of weaving their way through directors, trying to influence the direction of an organisation. Um, and, and that sort of shadow director behaviour is very disruptive to the organisation for one. But, but it actually, uh, it, it, if it goes wrong, it can have legal and other consequences for the person who's doing it.
0: Is your event visible? Attract traffic to your agricultural industry event by featuring it in the GGA statewide events calendar. Circulated fortnightly, the Grower Group Alliance calendar is the most comprehensive calendar for the Western Australian agricultural industry. Featuring your event is free Head to the Grower Group Alliance webpage to subscribe. gga.org.au
1: So can I um, ask all of these different types of directors and you've mentioned in in these definitions that they need to be in the constitution. The standard template constitution that has come out recently that most of the, well, every, all, all Western associations, associations have had to and groups and clubs have had to rewrite their constitutions. Did that template have capacity for all of those directors? No, it won't know? It
2: won't have capacity for all of them, Callista, because they, they, they won't define normally shadow director or de facto directors. You'll only put nominee directors in if there is a nominee director needed on your board. Uh, you, you'll only have alternates if there's a need for alternates. Normally you will find the, uh, the executive director role will be defined, the chair's role will be defined, uh, and the role of the uh, of the, the, uh, the non-executive directors yeah. will normally be rolled as defined as directors. Yeah. If you've got any of those other ones uh, like nominees and, and so on, alternates, they will have to be defined in the Constitution for them to to actually uh, occur. The other ones like shadow and uh, uh, shadow director de facto directors, you just need to be aware of those. They're not real directors, but they can be if yeah. uh, if, if they meddle in the affairs of the organisation.
1: Yeah. Now, that de, um, de facto director, I just wanted to circle back to that a little bit because that situation you were talking about, a, a, a CEO or an executive officer yeah. um, can sometimes be a de facto director. That's That situation is probably quite relevant for a lot of the Grow Group network in Western Australia, yes. the uh, larger ones that have an EO um or a CEO in place, how, on a practical sense, how, does that, how do you navigate that fine line? Because obviously EOs and CEOs are, are in meetings and they're informing their directors reporting as to what's going on. And, and often the directors are asking for uh, their advice or opinion on, on something. So how do you navigate that issue that you were talking about of not encroaching on being a, direct, a de facto director?
2: Well, it's, it's pretty clear. I had 20-odd years as a CEO and, and I saw my role as to provide advice, put it to the board, get them to question me about uh, that advice. But the decision-making process is the board's decision. Otherwise, you're making decisions on your own work.
1: Yep. Uh, so in a practical sense, the, the chair would then put something to a vote and yes, the right. CEO has no say in, yeah. in that vote and it's to the floor to the voting It gets
2: trickier directors. if you're an executive director. Or a managing yes. director, so you do have the right to vote. Yes, but uh, I really exercised that as an executive director or a managing director, because uh, you know you're voting on your own work sometimes. So I tended to uh, to not to not vote on on those sort of issues. I was very handy for quorums because you uh, you were a director, and if you were one short for a meeting, you were, you were always uh, there as a director. So it was handy from that point of view. But you're, the, uh, a managing director is entitled to have a vote, but I think you've got to be really careful that they don't get so involved in the decision-making process and drive that decision-making process. But if you are a managing director, you're roped in anyway. I think it's more for CEOs and EOs that uh, if, if they, they get too carried away with themselves in sort of pushing themselves in the decision-making process, they can finish up with a problem.
1: Yeah. So l- looking back on all of that, um, you know, it's an enormous amount of information you've given us there around directors' responsibilities. I think you know it's its highlights of the importance of all committee members that are coming in to make sure that they've they know what they're getting into, that they've read the constitution, they are checking that their 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 group at the very least is incorporated, and that they're really comfortable with what they're committing to in, in that capacity.
2: Yes, I think that's – reading the constitution was always a good start because it gives you a clear idea of what the the rules of the game are, I suppose, for for your board meetings. Uh, And I think getting further uh, education and information, being a director is like running a farm. You wouldn't let somebody run your farm if they had no experience. Yeah. So to try and get – and I know this is great what uh, Growers Group does in in bringing education out to the regions because it just gives people enough confidence to know what they're doing. Yeah, and the other one is finance. You you really need to, to to do a short course, or or to get somebody to help you to understand uh, what the books of account are, as they call them within uh, uh, within an organisation, because uh, it's really important that everybody's on song as far as running a f- successfully fi- a successful financial organisation and avoiding running into problems of becoming insolvent and so on. So. It's there's a need for some, I think, additional training for those who are a bit weak in that area.
1: So understanding a balance sheet, profit yep. and loss. That's certainly thing. At very at the very minimum, cash flow. Yes. Um. You and know. how to
2: monitor how to monitor performance? Yeah. To look for the highs and the lows and the things that don't look right. Yeah. You don't have to be an accountant, but you've got to be a financial detective.
1: Yeah, and certainly. Um, the rules around you know what's required with the financial reporting depending on the scale of the
0: yes.
1: the the group and their um, cash um, thresholds the amount of cash that they're yes. turning over those requirements different and it's really important that committees um, look into uh, what the requirements in terms of reporting are and and uh, across all of that so where do they check what those thresholds are what is the who would be the main contact organisation. Phone a friend to get help on that.
2: <laughs> uh, well, the Institute of Company Directors has has a lot of literature on that. They have books on it. Um, quite often, uh, you know, even your own local accountant, yes. you know, would probably be prepared to help after hours with you. If you do have a uh, a treasurer, or you have a say a financial person like a bookkeeper or an accountant in the organization, they can steer you through some of the how the accounts are laid out and so on. But there's a lot can be done by by reading, uh, and there's even external courses run out of TAFEs and other places where you can build up on that. The danger is you don't just rely on the one person on the board, if that happens to be the case, who has a formal financial qualification. Everyone's got to be educated enough to the degree where they can spot things that could go wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, basic sort of Yes. jump off the page at you. Wh- yeah. Why
2: has it gone up this month yes. and it was lower last month? Yeah. Those sort of questions. Yep. Never be afraid to ask the That's question.
1: That's right. Yeah, often there's a lot of anxiety around you know, yes. unpacking um, the, the financials in a community group and yes. sensitivity around it, but, um, people mustn't be sensitive around it. It needs to be yeah. fully transparent and, and yeah. as to what's going on. And
2: Never agree to something you don't understand. Always ask the question. We'll deal with that in a subsequent uh, uh, podcast.
1: Before we wrap up today's session, um, I'm going to we've actually got some questions that have come in from the network. Um, the first one is around transitioning um, into an executive officer's role. So the question is, if you are moving into an executive officer's role, what aspects of governance would you prioritize becoming familiar with?
2: Okay, um, there's lots of things, uh, but let me just try and let me focus on some, perhaps the, the big ones. The first one that I would focus on that might might not be obvious is to make sure that you've got the right relationship between the, the EO and the chair. That is critical because without that, if you haven't got the full backing of the chair and you, you're not able to work uh, closely with them, so I would be really focusing on setting the ground rules for that. You know, we've got one another's backs and we're going to support one another and that sort of thing. And also with the other directors, getting... Uh, uh, establishing a good rapport with the other directors, an open, frank, and honest relation. You don't have to be best friends. In fact, it's probably best you're not. But certainly, having those relationships right will make for a very successful transition and for longevity if, for you in the in the role. Financial records are one that I always go to very quickly if yep. I'm appointed. Uh, what's the state of the finances? Uh, how liquid are we to be able to continue to work? What sort of assets have we got? What's their state? Is the balance sheet reflecting assets that are no longer really worth anything? And so on. So the financial records particularly. I would look at strategy. What is the strategy? Where is the current strategic plan? What's it look like? Uh, And how far have we got in implementing it? Because that will immediately tell you if the board's agreed on a strategy and it's not being done, well then that that will point to disappointment and problems down the track. Staff engagement, if you've got staff, how well are they engaged with the organisation? If there's dissatisfaction there, what do you need to do about it? Um, Do you have the right people in the staff is another thing that you look at. And then finally, regulatory uh, compliance. Uh, Have we adhered to all the things I was talking about earlier about uh, having your reports into the regulator and so on? Are we compliant with all of that or are we in trouble if it hasn't been done?
1: Yeah, and bringing that to the, the attention of your board if unfortunately yes, they've yes. neglected that area um, yeah. and engagement with that.
2: So that, that's that's not an exhaustive list, but it's yeah. some of the big ones.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much then for all that content today, Peter, on Director's Responsibilities and let, let's leave it there for today.
2: All right. Thank you very much, Callista.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the content in this episode of the Let's Talk Governance podcast. Resources around governance for grower groups, including where to connect with guest expert Peter Fitzpatrick, can be found on the Grower Group Alliance website at gga.org.au. Before we go, one final acknowledgement to our podcast sponsor, the CBH Group, who have been right behind this new way of making governance guidance really accessible to the Grower Group Alliance Network and any other not-for-profit stakeholder groups tuning in.